Hello, you're listening to Trends Distilled, a podcast series from independent family-owned premium spirits company, William Grant & Sons. From the nationwide closure of bars and restaurants to changes in the way we work, shop and socialise, the drinks industry, like many others, has faced a challenging time. So to navigate this new environment, the distiller behind brands such as Hendrix Gin, Glenfiddich and the Balveni explores insightful predictions using the findings of its annual trends report. I'm Tanya Breyer and in each episode I'll be joined by a series of guests to delve into this new research looking at the evolving habits, values and lifestyles of UK consumers from the short-term disruption of COVID-19 to the impact of changes that are here to stay. We'll also be letting you in on a few trade secrets, washed down with perfect cocktail recipes from some incredibly talented bartenders. Well, hello and a very warm welcome back to Trends Distilled. Now, we know more of us are shopping online than ever before because of the pandemic, and we know that businesses are turning to online sales to survive as well. But how is this boom in e-commerce shaping our expectations of the brands we buy from? Well, here to explain that is the wonderful Tamara Lawson, Head of Strategic Planning and Insights at William Grant & Sons. She's going to guide us through the trends shaping our expectations. And I'm also joined by Sasha Filimonov, the UK brand ambassador for Hendrix Gin, one of William Grant's staples. And our talented bartender in this episode is Caitlin Wilkes-Back, who's the assistant manager at the Barclay Hotel's Blue Bar. She'll be joining us halfway through the podcast to make us a fantastic cocktail of her choice. And last but not least, I'm joined and very pleased to introduce David Abramovich, the exceptionally dynamic CEO and founder of Grind Coffee. David, I'm going to start with you. Can you tell me first a little bit about Grind Coffee and how you've adapted your business over the past year with all the challenges? So I founded Grind as a a single coffee shop in Shoreditch back in 2011 when not everyone knew where Shoreditch was and certainly not everyone knew what a flat white was. And uh, obviously things have, uh, things have changed a lot since then. But um, yeah, I founded that first site as a bit of fun actually around a, a tech business that I have. But, you know, one thing led to, the, to another and we, we started doing cocktails in the evening and we became very well known for our espresso martini, which I think we paid to play the small part in putting on the map. And then we kind of built, built out grind kind of site by site over the years. We used crowdfunding a lot, raised, um, raised many millions of pounds to help, help grow the business, you know, being funded by our customers. And we got to the point where, you know, pre-pandemic, if you like, you know, the old world, we, were, uh, we had 11 locations, employed about 300 people, and we, we'd evolved into kind of all day, all night, coffee, cocktails, brunch, and dinner. And recently, uh, you know, about about a year or so before COVID hit, we'd started to invest increasingly in the roasting of our own coffee, which we've done for some time, but we moved it into um, a much bigger roasting facility. And we started uh, supplying Soa House Group globally. So you can find Grind Coffee in all Soa House venues worldwide now. And we also introduced our coffee pods, which are our own compostable and organic Nespresso capsules. Um, and we introduced those expecting it to be a small part of the business. 
Um, but it's now become the biggest part of the business as a result of the pandemic. So we've seen a huge, huge, huge shift in, in the makeup of Grind um, in the last 12 months um, as a result of the pandemic. What have been some of your biggest challenges, though, in the last year? I mean, how long have we got? <laughs> We're very lucky because we invested quite a lot of money and time and energy into a new website and a new roasting facility and started doing some online advertising. And, and luckily, we started to build the direct-to-consumer arm of our business a year before the pandemic hit, which meant when it did hit, we could really take advantage of it and grow that extremely fast. We are completely exposed to central London property. So we are, you know, Liverpool Street, London Bridge, Soho, Covent Garden, places which overnight went from being the busiest places in the UK to the quietest places in the UK. So, you know, that uh, that just throws up an unbelievable number of challenges from, you know, having to reduce the number of staff and obviously look after staff as best you can through furlough, having to have some very difficult conversations with landlords who you've always paid rent to in full and on time every quarter forever saying, guys, look, we just, I can't pay you the rent when my revenue is zero. Having to talk to our bank and, and take on many millions of pounds of additional debt financing to, to, to bridge us until the other side. You know, it's been an incredibly challenging year for all hospitality uh, businesses and, and, you know, constantly being told you can open, you can't open, you can open, you can't open. You know, it's very hard to switch businesses like restaurants on and off. You know, there are stock, there's lots of staff, lots of prep required. Although the direct-to-consumer side has been amazing for us on the high street, you know, we put everything into building up our business for 10 years. You know, we were used to serving thousands of people coffee and brunch every single day, millions of cups of coffee a year. And you know, effectively, that evaporated overnight through no fault of our own. Well, what about Hendrix? Jin, Sasha, what kind of things have you been doing to pivot online? We've heard all the challenges that David has had to face with, with his business. And, and of course, hospitality is one of the industries that's had the biggest impact from the pandemic. Well, obviously, with Hendrix, it's a brand that has a really strong experiential DNA. And we've always taken so much pride in bringing a bit of escapism and magic to life for both, you know, the on-trade and consumers. So stripping that away and, and pivoting online was an unusual situation to be in. And from my role specifically, looking at Hendrix from an advocacy perspective, one of the key focus areas for us was about delivering immersive and interactive virtual masterclasses and experiences. So to try and bring a bit of delight and respite into these confined and challenging times. And we wanted to do something that felt a little bit different than a standard Zoom masterclass. So we launched Hendrix Air, where we have been taking guests on virtual flights to our home place in Girvan in Scotland, which is where our mighty and magical Hendrix Gin Palace lives, to give guests a little peek behind the curtain of our beautiful distillery. And over Christmas, Hendrix went live on TV for the very first time ever, and our ads could be spotted across 
you know, your TV screens, your laptop screens. And so we know that with an increasing number of UK consumers setting up, you know, their own at home bars, there is an appetite to try and bring the magic of the bar into people's own living rooms, their kitchens, their dining rooms, etc. One of the you know, other ways that we were pivoting was, of course, dipping our toes into the delivery cocktail space. So we partnered with some phenomenal suppliers such as the Drink Drop and the Cocktail Man. So, for example, during London Cocktail Month, we worked with the Drink Drop to help us link up with some of the best bars in London, including the Blue Bar at the Berkeley Hotel. That way we could, you know, bring their amazing drinks making talent and that little snippet of hospitality to a wider number of people across the UK. Does all of this resonate with the research that William Grant has been doing? And how have our online habits changed, you think, over the past year? Well, we're definitely spending way more time online. It's estimated an increase of around 30% more time spent on devices versus last year. And that means that we're generating huge amounts of data and also viewing loads more ads uh, as a result. Um, Unsurprisingly, e-commerce, including social and voice, um, is the fastest growing channel, growing around 80% year on year. And we know that four out of 10 of those who are new to digital commerce are actually um, the retiree generation. But beyond purchasing, um, we are also seeing a new reliance on digital ecosystems at home, um, technology and devices, especially during lockdowns. We're working, homeschooling, socialising, learning, watching, gaming. Um, And as the quote goes, I think habits can be slow to form, but once they do, they can become entrenched. I know that some of these habits we will expect to kind of continue. But do you think as consumers, are we becoming more impatient? Do we expect more results? Yeah, on the one hand, we're experiencing a slower pace of life at the moment. But also since COVID, uh, we are much more reliant online and there's never been so much data captured about us. Um, The growth of expectation on brands and services, I think, goes hand in hand with the time spent online. Um, The main drivers of this increase in expectation trend um, is about convenience, speed and uh, brands being able to anticipate my needs. So we're seeing what was kind of niche and at the forefront of the trends in terms of um, anticipation of needs or speed of delivery actually becoming a basic expectation of consumers. So, um, you know, I used to expect my Tesco delivery in like sometime in the next week, but now I can get a Cardo Zoom in a couple of hours standard. Um, so COVID has driven some brands and uh, companies to create some really interesting innovations around these drivers of convenience, speed um, and anticipation. We're talking of grind, David. How have your consumers adjusted to their expectations and has your customer base remained loyal? Certainly the catalyst that kicked this all off was our existing customers saying, we still want, you know, we're used to having grind every day. We want it at home now. And that was the whole reason that we began the direct consumer business. And then really it's taken on legs beyond that now to the point where 
people who have actually never never interacted with our stores in person who might not live in London and might live in other parts of the world. We're shipping products all over the world now and, and a lot of it to non-London locations in the UK, but they're discovering it because of our growing online presence and our growing you know, Instagram account and things like that. And I think as we come out of the pandemic, we're going to be able to group these kind of at-home innovations into two categories. The things that got businesses through and then disappeared once restaurants were able to reopen and the things that were genuinely a permanent shift and that will continue even once people are able to socialize again. And, you know, I'm hopeful for us that, that we're obviously in the latter category and not just a substitution. We're going to open up our virtual bar on Trends Distilled and discover how to make this week's cocktail. So welcome back to you, Caitlin. Thank you so much for joining us. I know that we'd normally find you at the Blue Bar at the Barclay Hotel. First of all, tell us what you're going to make for us. And I just want to tell everyone at home that's listening to us that we've been lucky enough that we have had a delivery, all of us, of the ingredients. So we're going to try what Caitlin's going to make for us actually at home. Okay, so the drink I'm going to make um, is called a Ruby Spritz, which of course is a spritz style cocktail, um, which means there's a little bit of wine in it. But of course the base of the cocktail is the delicious, delicious, delicious Hendrix Gin. Um, And then we're gonna add a little bit of Campari, which will add just a touch of bitterness to the drink. Um, and then our wine element for the spritz, which will be a tawny port. Just add a little bit of fruitiness, lengthen the cocktail as well. And then just a tiny touch of honey to sweeten up the drink, to cut a little bit of that bitterness from the Campari. And then ice. Ice is really important when it comes to making a drink. You definitely want to use a lot of it. And um, in my case, as big ice cubes as you can find. You've got, I mean, (laughs) our audience can't see, but I will describe for them uh, that Caitlin has abnormally huge ice cubes. (laughs) Not really sure where she's getting them from. (laughs) And then to garnish the drink with a cucumber. So you have the hibiscus and rose soda, um, pulling out the rose notes from the gin, and then uh, the cucumber as a garnish to pull out those cucumber notes from Hendrix. Um, Let's take a sip. Wonderful, cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Oh, that's lovely. Mm. Delicious. Super delicious, really refreshing, and definitely in that sort of spring element, but also that sort of wintry flavors from the port, the Campari, and of course, delicious Hendrix gin. So I hope you all enjoy it. Thank you. Lovely. Good health, everyone. David, if I can tear you away from the cocktail that she's uh, just showed us how to make, what about the expectations for coffee shops or the bars or other parts of the hospitality sector? Should the industry, do you think, be given greater autonomy to make decisions around reopening them? Yeah, look, I've been I've been fairly outspoken um, in saying that I think a lot of the measures against hospitality were kind of disproportionately targeted against our sector and I think if you look at the data um, our our sector did an incredibly good job of controlling the spread of the virus you know my business and many others we spent a huge amount of money on additional staff and plastic screens and lots of other measures to keep people safe and actually you know compared to some of the other environments such as retail supermarkets 
even sports events at some point, which is actually a very uncontrolled environment. Uh, hospitality, when you know, when we introduced some of the rules that we did, such as you've got to remain seated, uh, only small parties, no service at the bar, you know, it was incredibly controlled, actually, um, and incredibly safe. And I think it was quite unfair how we were targeted. I, I think this new variant has, has moved the needle a little bit on the whole discussion. That has changed things and has made things even more difficult. But what I'm hopeful is that there can be a really sensible conversation that says by the 1st of March, the vaccination has hit, you know, all of the 80-year-olds, most of the 70-year-olds and all of the other at-risk categories. So now we need to give everyone, the whole population, a bit more autonomy in choosing their own kind of risk profile and how they want to behave. And, and that has to apply to businesses as well. Did you notice a difference, though, in terms of protecting jobs and the sector re-emerging strongly between the first lockdown and the second lockdown after the reopenings? We were able to bounce back really well. And actually, our trade bounced back better than I thought. People enjoy particularly coming to us for brunch at the weekend. But I think it's important to know that the, the support provided was to protect jobs, but that still costs us money to keep those people furloughed, particularly if we're topping up. There was no support for paying our rent. There was no support for paying all of the many, many other overheads that come with running a business. I think it's a bit of a misnomer to think that businesses have been just completely supported throughout this whole period. They haven't. You know, every hospitality business has had to take on a ton of debt, eat through all of their cash. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's interesting because I think going forward, Sasha, after the venues hopefully all reopen and hopefully that's not too far away, do you think that people would have got used to how things were? And do you think there'll still be an uptake in deliveries and there's still a demand for takeaway cocktails? Absolutely. And I, I think Tamara mentioned it earlier about these the entrenchment of habits. So I think it's something that businesses will definitely be cognizant of moving forward as things start to reopen. So there's going to be great value for the on-trade to continue this diversification of their offerings and using e-commerce to drive those additional streams of revenue. So many venues and businesses have really admirably been pivoting to deliver these diverse offerings in this post-COVID world. So an example, top slash shop cuvee, they went from being a wine bar slash bistro to a shop selling fantastic wines, beers, and cocktails from some of London's best bars and delicious meals to have at home and moving into the delivery business. And so that business has become so successful, they decided to keep the shop cuvee brand running as a permanent fixture. We've also seen this consumer demand for delivery as well as takeaway cocktails. And beyond just, you know, delivery cocktails, but things like seasonal hampers for key occasions like Christmas, New Year's and the like. So I know that the Lioness Bar saw huge traction and interest in their hampers and it surpassed all of their initial projections. So they'll really look to keep that as a permanent stream of revenue moving forward. And what's great is all of these things really give consumers the opportunity to support their favorite venues and bring a piece of that incredible hospitality experience into their own homes as best they can in the face of lockdowns and you know limited socialization opportunities. And when we can you know reopen and go back into the world 
businesses that have also looked at, you know, adding food offerings to their business might keep that on because it's an opportunity for them to drive increased spend per head by offering those additional food options. When it comes to kind of cocktail and cooking masterclasses, what's brilliant about delivering these to people virtually is that this at-home experience is more sensory, so it's blending sight and taste and smell, touch, and it makes it more memorable and immersive. And food and beverage has performed the best from a virtual experiences perspective, with 32% of virtual experiences coming from this sector. So it's a really great opportunity. And Tamara, do you think that clicking away on Amazon and others gives brands the chance to gather a whole lot more of our data? And the fact that it does, there's also been a bit of a backlash, hasn't there? Because everyone's a bit worried that brands or tech might know too much about us and they may use it or they may sell it. Brands and e-com channels are collecting more data than ever. And although we appreciate um, some of the reasons for that, like it's great when a brand or service anticipates my needs, we're getting kind of streamlining of our choices available and um, it overall makes our lives a bit easier. We're able to find content more easily because it's directed to the things that we're um, interested in. Um, but yes, absolutely, there are backlashes against that. And I think conversations about the use of data ongoing are, are going to kind of continue. Um, people are becoming increasingly aware about how their data is used. What do you think, David? How should independent brands compete with the mega brands like Starbucks or Amazon in giving customers what they want? Yeah, I, th I think Amazon is a great example because Amazon has completely shifted what is considered normal. It does create a real problem for independent brands when when free next day delivery becomes the normal, that becomes the norm and, and expected. That is that is a big challenge. You, you know, I think all you can try and do is use your existing infrastructure as best you can. So maybe use your physical stores to help in that kind of last mile delivery thing. There's not an easy answer to how you compete with the logistics of Amazon because they are unbelievably good of it whatever you think about amazon they are incredibly good at the logistics side of their business and that does that has changed consumer expectations in everything from grocery to you know regular shopping we've talked a lot about how our, our, all of our expectations are changing but what's next for this trend do you think tomorrow going forward so we've heard that consumer expectations are inextricably linked to time spent online um, the drivers of convenience and reliance on speedy delivery and anticipation of our needs will continue. Looking forward, tech acceleration, the introduction of 5G um, is coming and will undoubtedly open further opportunities for brands to connect with consumers. However, with impending economic pressures on the horizon, businesses and brands will have to be smarter with discovery, sales and delivery. This kind of cross-category and cross-sector partnerships um, that create efficiencies and fulfil multiple consumer needs across fewer touchpoints is probably where we're going to see the most growth coming from um, in the future. 
Yeah, it's so interesting. Well, for now, we've all been at least been able to enjoy our own cocktail at home. Thank you so much to all of you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yes, Thank you so much, everyone. Well, sadly, that's all we've got time for this episode. In the next episode of Trends Distilled, we're going to be discussing our values and how they inform our buying habits. Are you more likely to choose a brand if they hold similar values to your own? Please let us know. Until then, stay well, stay safe. Goodbye. If you'd like to find out more about the trending 2021 research we've been discussing today, you'll find the full report at williamgrant.com forward slash trending 2021. To continue this discussion and to find the recipe for the amazing cocktail we created, head over to at William Grant UK on Instagram or find us on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening to today's Trends Distilled.